Welcome to Australian Hiker. We're your hosts, Tim and Jill Savage. This is episode 24 of the Australian Hiker Podcast. In today's episode, we're going to look at technology on the trail, specifically personal locator beacons. Now, the use of technology on the trail is a controversial topic that can generate heated conversations over the pros and cons of the different technology, as well as the impact that it has on hiking experience in general. And a good example of this is a recent Facebook survey that we ran on whether hikers use personal locator beacons or not. And I'll discuss some of these results uh, as we go through uh, today's uh, episode. But what did surprise me with this this survey was not so much the results, but it was more people's background or the the passionate background debate that went on uh, behind this survey. We're going to look at what beacons are, how they work, when we should be using them, and as the last segment of today's show, we're going to review the KTI SA2G Personal Locator Beacon. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. So what is a distress beacon? A distress beacon is an electronic device that, when activated in a life-threatening situation, assists rescue authorities in their search to locate those in distress. From a hiking perspective, PLBs are relatively lightweight and small and will fit into your pocket or clip to your pack or belt very easily. Now, in relation to beacons, there's three main types that you're likely to hear about or come across. The first one which we're more concerned with is the personal locator beacon or PLB. These beacons are generally for personal use by bushwalkers or four-wheel drivers uh, or other adventure activities on land. And in most cases, you can use them on boats as long as you're not going more than two nautical miles offshore. But you'll need to check that with your local state to see if that's acceptable or not. These beacons are relatively inexpensive. Uh, They're also relatively small uh, and do the job quite well. The second beacon which is probably one that people often tend to know a bit more, know a bit better, particularly from a boating perspective, is the EPIRB, or Emergency Position Indicating Radio Beacon. And these beacons, as I said, are usually for use on water. They tend to be larger as well, so they're not really of the right sort of size to carry as, as a hiker or a backpacker. The third and final beacon is the Emergency Locator Transmitter, or ELT. These beacons are for use on aircraft, Um, However, it's not uncommon to have EPIRBs and PLBs carried in their place. Now, how do beacons work? Basically, when activated, beacons will transmit a signal that's detected by a worldwide international satellite system. And you'll have to excuse my pronunciation here. It's the COSPIS SARSAT system. This signal is detected by a rescue coordination centre, Uh, and they coordinate a response. 
Your beacon can be activated from anywhere on the Earth's surface, regardless of whether you're traveling by air, land or sea. Now, satellites, as good as they are, cannot see or cannot detect beacons through mountains, trees or buildings. So if you haven't deployed your beacon correctly with the antenna vertical in a clear open space, or if you're in a valley, the geosatellites or the geostationary satellites are unlikely to see you. In these cases, you need to wait for the polar orbiting or LEO satellites to pass overhead, which can take several hours. Another important factor which determines how long your rescue takes is if you have a global positioning or GPS beacon or a non-GPS beacon. Beacons manufactured in Australia are all GPS beacons. Now, when you purchase a beacon, you need to ensure that you thoroughly read the instructions and know how to use it. So with the beacon I have, I'll do an annual, um, I'll, do, I'll go through and read the instructions annually, and I'll go through and do a, uh, a, 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 a test to make sure the beacon is working okay as well. I'll also make sure that my hiking partner knows how to use the beacon and to know where it's located. And that might sound a little bit of an overkill, but I have to say sometimes uh, the PLB is not the, the most obvious thing on my mind. So knowing where Tim's uh, carrying it, knowing how to use it, knowing how to set it off, and not totally relying on Tim, because Tim might actually be the person that's out of action, um, is quite important. So how long does it take to be rescued after activation? Well, this depends on a lot of stuff. So the time it takes for rescue personnel to reach you depends on a number of factors, including the weather, terrain, accessibility of your location, and availability of rescue resources at the time of your incident. The more remote, remote the location of the distress incident, the longer the response time. That obviously makes sense. But what this means is that while emergency services will get to you as quickly as possible, you or your group will need to be able to manage the situation as best you can until they arrive. Now, just as, just going back to um, uh, the Larapinta trail trip that we did last year, we talked to um, a couple of the rangers along the way as we went, and we asked them about the uh, the the prevalence of rescues and, and how it tended to work on the Larapinta Trail. And like any of the, the Australia or the world's major trails, rescues do happen from time to time. One of the ones we, uh, they, we discussed with them was a, uh, a hiker who'd badly broken their leg. Uh, they weren't in a life-threatening situation, but there was no way that they were going to be able to walk out. Uh, and what happened in this situation, the, uh, the, the accident occurred at night time, uh, visibility was very poor, uh, where the people were located was very difficult to get in and out of. So what actually ended up in that situation was the rescue services got as close as they could. Um, a number of the uh, the rescue team walked in and spent overnight with the actual injured party uh, and then got them out to a situation the following morning where the helicopter could take them uh, take them to hospital. So that means when you're planning your trips, you will need to ensure that you've considered those sorts of possible scenarios and have emergency plans in place as best you can. So what do you need to consider when you're buying a beacon? 
The Australian Maritime Safety Authority website contains a list of beacons that meet Australian standards um, and we'll put in the article the, uh, the link, the web link, uh, to the website. Um, beacons manufactured to Australian standards will meet your needs as a hiker. In addition to standard PLBs, you can also have beacons that have two-way communication op options. For example, the Spot 3. Uh, a beacon purchased from Canada or the USA does not meet the Australian standards and cannot be registered in Australia. So that's pretty important and something to think about for those who are keen on buying uh, any equipment online. Now we'll talk about the Spot 3 in, a, in, a, in an upcoming episode, but today really we're just focusing on dedicated personal locator beacons. So how do you register and update your beacon? Well, beacons purchased within Australia are registered with AMSA and this allows search and rescue organisations to contact your designated emergency contacts if and when you set off your beacon. This means that providing you have kept your details up to date, then any potential rescue is likely to be quicker. Beacon registration lasts for two years and is free of charge. But you need to remember some of the following things. Re-register every two years before the current expiry date. If you have updated your beacon details within six months of expiry, AMSA will automatically renew your beacon and contact you with a confirmation. Now, this is really going to depend on how often you go hiking. I mean, if you're only likely to use your beacon once a year, you may not have actually updated your beacon within that time frame. So it's probably worthwhile putting a note in your calendar somewhere as a future, future reminder that you need to make sure your, balance, uh, your beacon does stay registered. You also need to update trip details every time you go out, ensure that they are detailed enough to assist anyone searching for you. And the last thing you need to do is ensure that you have let your emergency contacts know what you are doing. And this, again, sounds a really obvious one, but sometimes we forget to let the uh, contacts know that they're actually the emergency contact and sometimes they can't be contacted. <laughs> In terms of disposing of your beacons, beacons that have been sold, lost or disposed of should have this information recorded through AMSA. Do not throw away beacons without having the battery disconnected first. Now, the reason for this is a number of beacons end up in landfills each year uh, and they get activated as part of the uh, the process of being churned around and, and moving rubbish all over the place. So it's, it doesn't help AMSA to have these beacons going off randomly in the middle of landfill areas. And they actually spend resources and time uh, digging through these, these landfill areas and shutting off these beacons. Now, can I take my beacon overseas? You can take uh, an Australian beacon overseas, but before doing show, there's a couple of things you need to keep in mind. You need to contact your chosen airline uh, for guidance on carrying any distressed beacons, and every airline will have different regulations. As far as domestic travel in Australia, uh, Qantas Airlines don't need to approve the carrying of personal locator beacons in cabin or checked-in luggage, and they actually identify this specifically on their website. Jetstar and Virgin, when the domestic travel, don't ident identify these devices specifically, but they do default to uh, the Civil Aviation Authority 
which basically limit the battery sizes in these devices. Uh, and as long as the battery sizes uh, meet those requirements, then they're fine. In relation to traveling on international travel, this is something you're going to go through and need to check. So some countries will actually consider personal located beacon carriage uh, illegal on land. Uh, so AMSA recommends you contact search and rescue authorities in the countries you're traveling to. Now, when should you carry a beacon? In a perfect world, hikers don't undertake activities that exceed their skill levels and they don't have accidents. Uh, but we both know that this is not the case. People do often get lost for whatever reason or they have accidents or they have injuries uh, through no necessarily their fault of their own. Um, so in relation to accidents, sometimes we might get bitten by a snake, you might trip and seriously injure yourself. So going back to that example I, I used on the Larapinta Trail, um, where uh, uh, someone had badly broken their leg. Uh, so really in that sort of situation, while a badly broken leg is not necessarily life-threatening, there's no way knowing that that person could have actually got themselves out any other way. In addition, what happens if the experienced group leader is the one that has the issue? So I've often heard experienced hikers say that carrying personal lo located beacons aren't necessarily if you have the right skill, and that's fine. It, it Certainly having good skills makes a big difference and is likely to limit the requirement or limit the chance that you'll need one. But things are, aren't always within our control, so it's, uh, it's worth, uh, worth carrying one when you need to. Having spent a number of nights camping and hiking, personal located beacon discussion isn't really a topic that tends to come up on a regular basis. Um, so um, basically, located beacons uh, produced in Australia are all pretty uh, robust, reliable and lightweight. Um, and in a recent poll uh, that we conducted, uh, we had 29% of hikers never use a located beacon while 71% either use them on longer walks or all the time. Now, this poll may have been purely representative of the type of walks people do. Um, so as an example, I carry a beacon in the following instances. On all hikes, regardless of the group size, where I know my mobile phone won't be working. On solo hikes outside of urban areas, when my, even when my phone does work, so when traveling alone, particularly in areas where you will not see anyone for days at a time or you're too far away to get help, having a phone that works might work quite well. But as I said, I certainly work, uh, I certainly hike in a number of areas around the Canberra region where phone signal just doesn't happen. Um, and I, as an example, the Mount Bimbury walk that I did before Christmas uh, uh, of last year, um, uh, it was a 54-kilometer walk in one day. I didn't see another person the entire day. So, um, you know, worst-case situation, um, had I have uh, uh, needed help, um, helicopter would have been probably the best option. Uh, but certainly, I was, uh, you know, the closest person at best would have been probably 25 to 30 kilometers away from me. Now. The next thing is, when do you activate a beacon? And this is probably one of the biggest causes of debates between hikers. Now, the correct answer is, and this is from the AMSA website, is if two-way communications are not available, then a distressed beacon should be activated in situations of grave and imminent danger. 
This equates to when you feel you're facing a life-threatening situation. And this is a personal decision that, that is different for everybody. So again, as I said, this is AMPSA's text. As indicated by AMPSA, what you consider as a hiker to be life-threatening is very much a personal decision. So what does this mean? Now, regularly I see cases uh, identified on the internet or in hiking magazines where beacons have been set off for frivolous reasons. Uh, and examples of this have been, I'm too tired to, to walk out or I ran out of food. My favorite one was uh, when I was going through and researching for this article was a beacon that went off in Central Australia and was set off by a cow who was actually going through and nosing it and seeing if it was edible. Now, apparently the beacon had fallen out of a helicopter. The owner of the beacon hadn't bothered to notify AMSA and hadn't cancelled it or shut it down. Um, so all that, all that uh, AMSA knew was that a beacon had been activated. They sent a rescue team out to, to find out where what someone was having a problem with and just found, found this beacon lying in the middle of a, a middle of cows in the middle of a paddock. So this, this is a really important thing. And I think, you know, sometimes we forget about the implications and the consequences of uh, some of our actions or um, some of our uh, non-action. Um, AMSA would have uh, gone into full-scale uh, search mode uh, found the cow, found the beacon, um, and you know potentially the downside of that is they could have been spending that time uh, rescuing or seeking out that particular beacon and not finding somebody who was really in need. Okay, so basically what it comes down to is don't be frivolous about setting off your beacon, but also I'd say don't be a hero as well. What you need to think through or what you need to keep in mind is that somebody else may be waking, waiting, as Jill mentioned. And if you think your situation through and try and see where it's going to head to. So if, as an example, your situation is getting worse, is unlikely to get better and you can see no other way out uh, or there's, you're not likely to come across another person anytime soon, you're best to set off the beacon sooner rather than later rather than waiting till the situation gets worse and becomes really serious. Now, the following is a few examples of reasons I'd be inclined to set off a beacon. So if you're sick or injured to the extent that you can't rest up or walk out with the first aid and emergency equipment and skills that you have, and examples of this might be snake bite, uh, broken leg, um, severe hypothermia or heat stroke, which can both be life-threatening. A severe medical condition, things something like heart attack or severe allergic reaction, Sometimes you might know you have these conditions. Other times they might come on without any warning at all. Another one might be that you have lost and have no chance of relocating yourself. Now, in this sort of situation, if you've done the right thing, you um, have left an emergency um, uh, details and, and a, 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 a trip itinerary with somebody, uh, eventually they're going to come looking for you. But it, what stage do people come looking? Is it half a day, a day, or two days or more? If your trip is that fluid, then you need to clearly spell out when is the problem time uh, and what to do about it. And the last one might be extreme environmental factors. And this could be bushfires or severe flooding that will put you in immediate danger. 
And there have been instances, not so much from a hiking perspective, but certainly of running races in Australia where runners have actually been severely injured because fires have actually come across them, uh, come on them without much warning. Now, these are just a few examples, and there's potentially no end than what can be considered a life-threatening situation. So if there are known conditions prior to your trip, work your way through them and identify at what stage you set the beacon off. And I think for those who are travelling in a group, this is actually a worthwhile conversation to have before you get started. Um, partly what you'll find is that you'll be able to come to um, perhaps a, a common ground. Uh, some, some people will have a very risk-averse view of some things and others will have a very uh, laissez-faire uh, view. And, you know, it, it, it really does need you all to be around the same kind of point of perspective uh, so that it becomes clear what the action's going to be um, particularly as it looks ready for action rather than getting yourselves into a debate, which is the last thing that you would want to do um, when you really should be thinking about a, an, the emergency situation itself. So what do you do if you set off your beacon accidentally? Um, this might sound like a really funny thing, but I would imagine it happens and it definitely is possible. If your beacon is accidentally activated... Switch it off immediately and contact AMSA on the 1800 number, 1800 641 uh, This number's on their website um, and it's in the article that we've written. There is no penalty for accidental activation. The sooner you call, the better, so as to minimise wasting uh, time and wasting this valuable rescue resource. Okay, so as a, as a final thought on this one, whether you use a beacon really is up as a personal choice and what really will depend on the type of hiking that you do and the risk level that you engage with. While they aren't the cheapest hiking item to buy, don't let cost be a determining factor. You're better off going out, with, going out without something else uh, than skipping the beacon just to get that extra jacket or that, that new sleeping bag you've been saving up for. If you've determined that you should be carrying one, buy one or else uh, go through and talk to some of the, uh, the larger hiking organisations uh, who hire them uh, and you might, they might find that you might just want to get one for a particularly for a longer trip. So uh, we've talked a lot about the beacons and um, we'll also talk about the spot three. Um, we've been on hikes where we've... we've um, had a beacon with us we've had a spot three um, with us and we get some interesting comments from obviously experienced hikers and they have a bit of a chuckle uh, particularly with using the spot three and you know sometimes in places where it's easy to navigate you really don't need your map you just follow the trail you follow the the, the trail markers and so on the reason we use it is to become familiar with it. So that's the other thing that I think is quite important. If you have one of these uh, beacons, um, if you are using something that is, or intending to use something that's going to help you at a particular point in time, make sure that you're familiar with it. Um, it's not about, you know, 
looking like a newbie. It's not about saying, well, I don't know what I'm doing, so I'm going to, you know, get all my kit out and, um, uh, you know, make it really obvious that I need it. It's about being familiar with it. And to be honest, um, anybody who says, well, an experienced hiker doesn't need these things, um, I'm not sure how they know that. I certainly can't predict the future. Um, I don't know how they think that they can predict the future either. So I do get a bit irritated by that because, sure, the best option is to hike within your means and your skill level sometimes the circumstances change so all your good planning may not actually assist you and you find yourself in a situation where you need to do exercise some emergency planning in this next segment of today's episode we're going to be doing a review of the kti sa2g personal locator beacon Now, KTI stands for Kinetic Technology International. It's an Australian company that manufactures locator beacons for both PLBs and EPIRBs, as well as uh, aviation uses as well. Now, the KTI SA2G beacon is probably one of the most commonly used beacons or commonly sold beacons for hikers on the market today. And we mentioned previously that some of the larger hiking organizations within the States do hire beacons and this is probably one of the more commonly be- commonly used beacons that are available for hire. Now, when choosing this uh, uh, this beacon, there are a number of things that I wanted to go through and look at. I wanted a, de- a dedicated emergency beacon. I didn't want a, a, a device that had a messaging service. So as I mentioned before, the Spot 3 is a good example for that. And, and as discussed, we'll talk about this in later episodes. I wanted an Australian-made device. I wanted it lightweight and compact, and this this beacon is around about 140 grams. So both this beacon and other beacons available on the market aren't particularly heavy. I wanted a long life battery. Uh, now these this uh, battery on this device uh, is will last for approximately 10 years. So it's uh, even though it's uh, uh, a beacon that can cost up to 240 to two to 300 dollars. And this is at the cheaper end of the range in Australia. Um, you know, when you consider it as a 10-year investment, it's actually pretty good value. Uh, price, as I mentioned, um, I wanted a, a beacon that wasn't, wasn't overly expensive. Uh, and I didn't want any other additional associated costs that come with subscription services. And again, that refers back to the Spot 3 and other types of beacons that have messaging systems associated with them. Now, the KTI SA2G beacon comes with a couple of carrying options. It comes with a neoprene armband so you can wear it around your arm. Uh, it also comes with a, a hard clamshell case that will, uh, that will thread through a belt so you can wear it on your belt. Um, a lanyard and whistle and a small credit card size reflective mirror. Um, so you've just got to try and think that... Uh, um, if you need to, if you're in a very bushy sort of area, you need to be able to attract attention, and a mirror is certainly one option there. Um, also comes with a lanyard which has a whistle on it as well. We discussed beacons that have uh, GPSs on them and also that meet Australian standards, and this one certainly does. Um, and what that means is 
This beacon will update its position every five minutes once activated. It's accurate to within about three meters. Uh, now, this accuracy really is based on being, you know, perfect conditions. Uh, so that's out in the open, no interference. Uh, it's waterproof down to around about three meters in salt water. So if you do happen to drop it into a creek or a river, um, uh, you know, if it's only shallow, you can basically retrieve it without having done any damage to it. Uh, typical satellite acquisition time when activated is, is roughly about 35 seconds. But as I said, this will depend on the, the terrain and the location you're in. 24-hour time uh, for transmission. Uh, and this will also transmit down to minus 20 degrees Celsius. So if you're in the snowfields, this is going to cover you as well. The beacon, as I said, also has a strobe light, which will improve visibility at night time. Now, when we talk about gear, we always talk, talk about negatives. And really with this device, or for that matter, other brands of uh, GPSs, there's not too much on the side of the negative. Um, I suppose realistically, the negative tends to be that you're spending an amount of money that you may never get any return on. But if you can think of this like an insurance policy, um, it's a waste of time until you need it, and then it's, it's priceless. It does also help to provide peace of mind that, you've, that if something does go wrong, you know that it's going to be there for you. Now, this device is uh, best used for hiking and bushwalking, as well as cross-country skiing. Uh, it also works well carrying in vehicles in remote areas. Now, typically, if you're going to be going out in the middle of nowhere um, in a, in a, in a four-wheel drive, you would hope that you would have some sort of radio or satellite phone as well. It can also be used for boats if as long as you're not going more than two nautical miles offshore, but you will need to check that with your local state authorities. So there's not really too much you can say about this sort of device to, 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 to make it a bit more sexy and, um, and to try and get people to, to get enthusiastic about it. It's one of those sort of things. It's a piece of safety equipment. Um, it's, uh, as a brand, it, is, it has a good reputation. Um, and as I said, it's now one of the more commonly used ones throughout Australia. So if you're umming and ahhing about whether you can afford to buy one, this is probably the model that you're going to go through and look at. It'll do the job uh, you need it to when you need it to. Okay, so just as a, a final roundup for today's episode, um, we've given quite a lot of information and a lot of factual information. So you may want to go through and have a look at the written version of, uh, of today uh, on our website. Uh, and have a look at some of the, the basic details will be listed on the show notes. Main thing to consider is uh, to hike within your limits whenever you're going hiking, uh, but also as well as planning for unforeseen circumstances, uh, which may include having a beacon as an emergency backup just in case. Now that's all for today's episode. It's been quite in-depth with a lot of information. So if you get a chance, go over to the written version of this podcast or have a look at the show notes uh, to pick up some, some of the details that will direct you to uh, the AMSA website and some of the other sites that we've gone through and mentioned. Our next episode will be published in two weeks' time and our topic for that will be what is the best backpacking stove for hiking? This episode and all previous episodes can be downloaded from iTunes, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud and through our website. To get these episodes as soon as they become available, subscribe through iTunes and Stitcher. 
That's all from us for today's episode. Bye for now. And bye from me.